If you don't love a romance, I pity you. If you don't love romance, you have a heart of stone. You should repent. How many of you are in a romance right now? Raise your hand. You in a romance? Just checking. All right. Brother Smalley, did I see your hand up on that one? I thought I would come over here tonight and get over here. We're in the Granville Couch. We call our house. We have little romances, buddy. But none like this one here. 60, how many years? 62 years. We're going to let them sit down and ask you to stand up and give them a round of applause. Well, let's stand up and just say, let it go. <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> what about that? All right. The girl I'm involved in a romance with told me I should do that. So anyway, before I get back to that, I need to do some preaching here tonight. Get to do some preaching. Um, and we're in Second Chronicles, and we're remembering the promises of God. In First Chronicles, we said that was about remembering whose you are. And tonight, we're remembering the promises of God. Let's do a little, we're going to fly over the Bible here, you know. And I don't know about you, I'm enjoying it, and it's encouraging to me and helpful to me. And I'm just enjoying the study of this, and, and, and thank you for the privilege that I have of being able to study the Word of God and, and just uh, spend time in the Word of God. And then... And then Kind of like whip up something and bring it to you so that your appetite is, is satisfied or at least uh, is an appetizer. In Genesis, God creates the cosmos and He chooses Abraham. In Exodus, God powerfully delivers Abraham's descendants from Egypt. In Leviticus, God reveals His holiness on Sinai and He gives the law. In Numbers, God destroys an entire rebellious generation in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy, God brings the new generation to the threshold of the promised land. In Joshua, God allows them to take the land under a new leader. In Judges, God allows them to descend into chaos because they rejected authority. In Ruth, speaking of romance, God shows the hope of a Redeemer even in dark times. In 1 Samuel, God demonstrates in Samuel and Saul and David the paramount principle of leadership, which is to seek the blessing of the Lord. In 2 Samuel, God raises up David and promises him an eternal throne. David succeeds and he fails like a man of God. In First and Second Kings, God reminds the people of why they landed in captivity. First and Second Chronicles, God stirs up their hearts in order to get them to return from captivity. And that's where we are tonight. Second Chronicles covers the history of Judah, southern kingdom, from Solomon to the Babylonian exile. And this is a continuation of the same book that we were really in last Sunday night when we talked about this. The message that God is conveying to Judah in this book is there is He's preparing them to leave exile and return and rebuild the, the temple and, and the land and, and go back to the land. It's is this. The, the message that God is giving to Judah is this. That it is possible to recover from apostasy. That it is possible to make a comeback. Our church age that we live in is characterized by seasons of apostasy and revival. And many of us believe that it will come to a conclusion in a time of apostasy. We don't know which time of apostasy that will be and how many revivals that God will send. But I will tell you, we, we need one right now. There's a simple run-through of Second Chronicles here in, in three quick stages. It's kind of the flow of the book. In chapters 1 through 9, you have the chronicles of the reign of Solomon. 
how many of you got a chance to read Second Chronicles? Raise your hand up real quick. And, and uh, this is great reading. Maybe you want to go there this week. Second Chronicles. Next Sunday night, we don't do a flyover message because it's communion, and we like to just set that aside for communion. And i got something on my heart already that I want to share with you as we approach the communion table. So you got a little bit of time to, to go to Second Chronicles, and there are just chunks of narrative in Second Chronicles that are really powerful, good edifying reading. So just get your Bible open and you're looking for somewhere good to read. Second Chronicles is a wonderful place to read. And especially here in chapters 1 through 9, it talks about the reign of Solomon. And we'll talk, we'll go there a little bit tonight, but that's the first kind of chunk in the book, if you will. In chapters 10 through 13, then you have the chronicles of the division of the kingdom. And after Solomon, of course, chapters 10 through 13. And the rest of the book are really little cameo appearances of the kings of Judah arranged in, arranged in a specific way. And it's not just, here is a record of the kings of Judah, good and bad. It's, here's a record of the kings of Judah arranged in a special way to elicit or to, uh, to stimulate um, confidence in the people of God that they can return from exile. And so it's a sort of a positive take. Remember we said that last Sunday night that, that the Chronicles book is more of a positive thing because the, the kings is trying to uh, uh, st- stimulate repentance and tell them why they got themselves in the mess that they're in. And the Chronicles then is to say, you can get out of this. You can recover from apostasy. If you're not tracking with me on this, you know, this is something that ought to hit real close to home tonight. Because, I mean, how many of us haven't found ourselves far from God, disobedient to God, not having done what we know we should have done, and we're in trouble because of it, and we're kind of searching the Bible for the promises of God, trying to find our way out of that mess. Are you with me on this? Anybody? Yeah. I see those hands. Nobody raised their hand. Okay. Well, I'm working. I'm doing my best here. Okay? So, this, let me give me some observations. The writer here used a formula. If you're really observant and you're careful in your reading, you see that there's a formula that the writer uses... And if you're perceptive, you see it very carefully, clearly, and it's this. He said more about the good kings, and he said less about the bad kings, and he said more good about the good kings and less bad about the good kings than he could have said. So he's intentionally arranged the material for a purpose. In the book, leaders play a key role, and that's true as a principle throughout time. But it's definitely true here that God is always kind of laying things at the feet of leaders, something to think about. Um, good leaders are examples, and they're used as examples, moralistic examples, really, in this book. And bad leaders are also pointed out. Good leaders are examples of faithfulness in faithless times, or times, like we said, of apostasy. What we want to be kind of careful, you know, we talked about this and warned you. When we read Old Testament narrative, one thing we want to be careful about is not to assume that every piece of Old Testament narrative is for the purpose of us finding moral lessons. Because if you're a little more sophisticated in the way you look at the Bible, you realize that the writers of the Bible might be doing something different than just giving hero stories or moral lessons. However, in this book you actually see hero stories and you have moral lessons. And it's obvious that that's exactly what they are doing in some cases. You give so much uh, space to say a good king, it's quite obvious that they're trying to say, this is an exemplary human being. These qualities are qualities that you're going to need to have. And so in this case, it's appropriate to do that. And I think we're going to see that here tonight in a couple of things. Individuals, the Scriptures are going to teach here, and you're going to see that individuals can thrive spiritually even though they're under godless or ignorant spiritual rulers. Did you hear what I just said? This book is to tell us that even though we're in a mess, 
and we have leaders over us who don't fear God and who don't know God, it is still possible to be obedient in that circumstance. Do you agree with that? We're going to show you this here in the Bible tonight. So it's an important thing. Right away, normally we leave this toward the end because of its importance, but right away let's talk about the kind of the redemptive clues in a book. Where are the pictures of Jesus in the book? And you have to, you have to get the impression as you read through these narratives of kings kind of rising and falling and good kings, you get kind of tired of hearing and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did what was evil. It's like, when are any of these guys going to get it right? Here's one. Oh, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but he wasn't complete in his obedience. And you're like, oh, what's the deal? God intentionally wrote the book in such a way that that is the emotion that we would have so that we would be asking the question with longing, where then is the worthy king? And where is the kingdom that my heart longs for? This is the purpose that God put into it. It was intentional that it would be that way because this is the, pl- this is the part that points so clearly to the, our worthy King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the only one who will ever satisfy, the only one that can ever rule our heart, the only one that will ever satisfy us and our, satisfy our deep longing for a king and our deep longing for a kingdom. And you heard it as you sang uh, the songs tonight. You might, you might disagree with me. You, might, you, might, you, you may not see with me as I see so clearly that Jesus is the theme of the whole entire Old Testament. And I want to make good on a promise I made last Sunday night and prove to you that the Bible says that. Not only does the Bible say that Jesus is the theme of the entire Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, but Jesus Himself claimed that He was the theme of the entire Old Testament. And He claimed it five times. And, and here they are. I think I have a little cool slide on this. Yes, I do. Can you, can you read that? Yeah, I can't. Um, Hebrews 10 and 7. Then I said, Behold, I've come in the volume of the book it is written of me uh, to, to do your will of God. John 5 and 39. You search the Scriptures, Jesus speaking, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me. What's he talking about? He's not talking about the New Testament there, right? Because he's speaking in New Testament time. In, in, in Matthew 5.17, how many of you have studied Matthew 5.17? Raise your hand. I uh, just see it if you were in church this morning, because that was my text this morning. Don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but fulfill them. They're about me. I'm fulfilling them. That's what Jesus is saying. This is a powerful one, and it's, it's kind of embedded in this awesome story, The Road to Emmaus. That's good reading, too. Luke 24.27, he's walking along the road. He's enlightening these disciples, and he says, beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded them in all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. He's in all the Scriptures. This is sweet, isn't it? And a little bit later on, he says this, and it's pretty too. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. That just kind of swept in the entire Old Testament. Jesus is saying, The Old Testament is about me. Can you tell me this? Tell the Jehovah's Witness person, a sincere Jehovah's Witness person that comes to you not, not believing that Jesus is really God or the Mormon that doesn't know that Jesus is really God or the liberal Christian doesn't know that Jesus is really God. Who do you know that could stand up and say the entire Old Testament is written about me and not get laughed off the face of the planet? Only Jesus could say something like that. He says this and he looks at them with a steely eye in the face. He said, go search the Scriptures. You're overlooking the key. The key to the Scripture in the Old Testament is me. So every time we study anywhere in the Bible, you just want to say, ask yourself the question, where are the pictures of Jesus in this? And in my heart, I, I, I certainly saw pictures of Jesus in this longing for a worthy king, don't you? And don't we have a worthy king? Can you say amen to that? 
Two highlights that really kind of encouraged me as I read this book through and studied it. Two very powerful examples, and I just kind of want to jump to them. What I'm kind of doing here is cheating a little bit, because you, know, you can't teach everything in here. So what I decided to do is I'm going to cherry pick a couple of my favorites. Now, when I thought of this, I thought, I thought you know, this would be a wonderful series. I don't want to freak you out or anything, but I thought of a wonderful series. If we got done with the whole Bible, which we're going to do someday if Jesus doesn't come back first, or I don't croak or something... Um, and that was, if we get done with the whole Bible, wouldn't it be something to go back to the entire Bible again and have that be like cherry-picking the Bible? So what we'd be doing is going to a, a, a book of the Bible and, and then me going to whatever my favorite part of that book is and preaching a message from that part. That'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, so cherry-picking the Bible. I've done that a little bit here, but I do think that the, the places where I've kind of picked the fruit here are places that are very powerfully exemplary of what this book really is all about and the, and the message that the Spirit would have even modern Christians understand about this book. It's got to be that way because of the way the narrative kind of slows down and the detail comes into the narrative. There are a couple of chunks in the book. When I notice more than any other place in the book, the narrative just slows down and then all of a sudden you have all this vivid detail and you find yourself being caught up into the story of it and wishing that you were actually there and you could have seen it happen. There are places, a couple of places, would you not have loved to be present when the temple was dedicated? Pastor Pine, now we're talking some, I mean, you know, right? Horns and choirs and regalia and robes and organization. You would just love that. Would that just be awesome? And an explosion of praise and thanksgiving to God. And here comes the Ark of the Covenant. And now Solomon is going to raise up his hands. He's going to pray before the people. The glory of God is going to fill the house. Nobody's going to be able to see because the glory. This is like this is like movie material. And this there's a chunk there in the narrative from chapter five through seven. In Second Chronicles, they ain't nothing that Hollywood can do that can top that. It's a piece of work. You should study that. It's so beautiful to see God visiting His temple with glory and showing up among His people. In that setting, He gives these promises. And in that setting, one of the promises He gives sounds kind of like this. And I'm going to paraphrase. Hey, if you ever find yourself in a position where, let's say, you've disobeyed the Lord and you've been carried captive into a foreign land and you realize what's happened to you and then you call out toward this temple, I want you to know that I will hear you and I will keep my promise and I will bring you back. Isn't it funny how that happened to land in this story to those people who happen to be in that exact situation? Do you see? So he puts the story there to stimulate in their heart. I couldn't help but think of you, dear people, this congregation. And I wonder what the Spirit of God would whisper into your heart and the stories that He would want you to see to draw you back into obedience to Him. What part of your life did, would God like to speak into right now that you have not listened to Him? You have not heard what He had to say. And He would tell you beautiful stories to remind you of His promises that if you would get on your knees and you would yield to God and obey His promises, claim His promises, he would take you back from wherever you found yourself in exile. How beautiful is that? Well, let's look at this and instead of just talking about it. Look in Second Chronicles chapter 5 and you see a piece of this. This is, the, this is now jumping into the, the, the story where you have, um, you have in the dedication of the temple, but in particular, the ark is coming to the temple. And it came to pass, verse 11, verse, chapter 5, verse 11. It came to pass when the priest came out of the most holy place for all the priests who were present, had sanctified themselves. 
without keeping to their divisions. And the Levites, who were the singers, and all of Asaph, and, and um, Haman, and Jeduthun, with their sons and their brethren, stood against the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals. Stri- that, those are percussion instruments. I, I just noticed that there. Um, having cymbals. You don't think that's funny? You don't have a sense of humor. Stringed instruments, <laughs> harps, and with them 120 priests sounding trumpets. Ooh, get a picture of that in your mind. That would, would have been a meltdown emotionally for me. I don't know if I could have stood that. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and the singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praise the Lord, saying, He is good and His mercy endures forever, that the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Ooh, that is amazing, isn't it? Just think about that. Stir your heart to be drawn back to that picture and say, God visited it with His favor and His glory came and He manifested Himself. God manifests Himself among the people. Solomon spoke. The Lord said He would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. And He turned around and He blessed the whole assembly of Israel while the assembly of Israel was standing. It just goes on. Look at, jump down in this. I hate doing this to you because it's all so good, but jump down to verse 12. And read in verse 12. See that? Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel. And he spread out his hands. Get a picture of that. Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high. Set in the midst of the court and stood on it. Knelt down on his knees before the assembly of Israel. Spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. The the Chronicle is recording this incident, this beautiful incident, and he's reminding us that when Solomon dedicated the temple, he prayed, he knelt down, he built a platform, he knelt down, he lifted up his hands, and he says, God, you are a God who keeps, who makes, and you keeps promises to people. You are a God who loves to make promises and keep promises to people. Remind the people that this is what Solomon had said. And then on and on, it will, he'll go on in, in saying these things. He said, The Lord God of Israel, no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep your covenant mercy to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. Verse 15, You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand, as it is to say. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way and walk in the law as you have walked before me. Do you see this? The chronicler is saying, or the Ezra, whoever it was, is saying, remember when Solomon prayed over and over that God is a covenant-keeping God and God is a promise-keeping God. Remember the promises of God. This is how you make your way back out of failure and apostasy. You remember what God promised. You remember His promises and His nature and His godliness, His character. You remember those things. What are you saying? Now, how, much, how it must have inspired the hearts of people. Look down in, in verse... Uh, I just hate skipping any part of this. I, look, let's um, look at verse 24. 
if your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you, and return and confess your name and, and pray and make supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. Does this sound familiar? It's exactly the setting they found themselves in. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain and they've sinned against you, then they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because it's simple. It's turning from your sin, confessing your sin, acknowledging your sin, and acknowledging God and claiming His promises, and then He restores people who do that. See yourself in the picture there anywhere? I think you are. I think you are. And I know I am. In chapter 7, and this is just almost a violence, not to read all of the rest of it because it's so beautiful. In chapter 7, you have an interesting thing. It, It gets even more intense. Fire is falling down now. And when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshipped and they praised the Lord saying, He is good and His mercy endures forever. Now, I don't think we should like whip up a bunch of enthusiasm for God that's not real, you know. But when God shows up one day, I, won't it be wonderful to see the saints just like spontaneously go down on their face before God? And it won't be contrived, and it won't be like an enthusiasm. It'll be real, I mean, genuine. This is something for which God's people ought to continually pray. We ought to continually pray. And this week, and grab a prayer partner and ask God for revival and ask God for a stirring and ask God for a new obedience to Him and ask God to do what no man can do and no method can do and no set of rules can do. Only God can do. Then we will see holiness. You've read the stories and we'll tell them as the the years go on, Lord willing, the Lord gives us time, about what it's like when God visits the people, whole people, whole groups, it rebukes principalities over whole areas of cities or, or even nations. And he visits those people. Then it's not an arm-twisting kind of a thing. The, 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 the glory of God comes down. We should, we should continually pray for that. And this is what you have a, a picture of here. God was pleased. And then God appeared to Solomon in the night individually. And it reminded him, this is in verse 12, chapter 7, God came to appear to Solomon in the night. What a beautiful night scene of the Bible. God appearing to Solomon and again reminding Solomon personally, remember the things that I said. I will keep my promises. If you walk before me, I'll do what I said and I'll keep my promises. So these are some beautiful pictures. We've got a little time left, so I get to tell another one. And this is one of my favorites because we have a son named Wesley. His middle name is Josiah. His first name would have been Josiah, but mom kind of, I think, vetoed the idea. But anyway, I get to talk about that tonight. And maybe you're going to get a little idea why I would want one of my sons to have the character of Josiah. This is a really cool Bible story. This is camp preaching, by the way. I have taken this one to junior camp before. You know why? Yeah, he's king when he was eight. Now, that's just like, that's fun. I just imagine what it'd be like. When, do you remember being eight years old? Got any eight-year-olds in the house here tonight? Eight? 
Anybody eight years old? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're eight years old. Let's see it. Oh, Antonio, you are eight. Imagine that Anthony is king. King Anthony. And, uh, and what kind of cereal do you like? What is it? What kind of cereal? What's, what's Anthony's favorite? Lucky Charms. <laughs> That's out of town. That's right. So can you imagine him saying, okay, I'm going to have some Lucky Charms this morning. I want a dump truck load of Lucky Charms on the palace grounds this morning. By 9 o'clock, our heads are going to roll. Well, that's some Lucky Charms here. And no, Mother, you're not going to spank me. I will banish you to the dungeon. <laughs> no, Dad, I decide who gets hired and who gets fired around here. I'm the king, you know. And by the way, the pastor, I got a couple of ideas for him, like shorter messages, you know. And I think junior church should meet in the auditorium and all the big people should go to the basement. You know, I just think if you're eight, <laughs> I'm going to preach the Bible here in a minute. Stay with me. If you're eight years old and you're the king, I mean, so, now look what he did. I'm being frivolous, but this is not. Now let's take 2 Chronicles chapter 35. I see you serious people out there looking down at your Bibles going, all right, let's, let's study the Bible here and come for that kind of foolishness. And I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting to be the king when you're eight years old. So he's eight years old and became king, chapter 34. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. If you're a young person, hear me. Listen to me. He walked in the ways of Father David and did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. David was not his father. Right? Was, was Josiah David's immediate father? No. His father was bad news. For most of his life, his grandfather was really bad news. Manasseh? Are you kidding? As some cool stuff happened to Manasseh that kind of brought him around toward the end of his life so that it would have overlapped his life, Josiah's life, in an interesting kind of a way. But he walked, in other words, he went back farther than that and he walked in the ways of, like, his nearest obedient relative, if you will. He walked in the ways of his father, David, meaning his ancestor, David, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. In the eighth year of his reign, how old is he now? 16. Yeah, and I'm not even good at that math. I got that one. When he was still young, he's 16. Any 16-year-olds tonight, raise your hand if you're 16. I'm seeing that hand, Wes. Who else is 16? Come on, work with me here. Yeah, yeah, Bonnie's 16. Who else? we got 16-year-olds. Okay, yeah, check it out. Okay, you're 16, and you are leading the nation. Leading the nation. Look at this. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. You can seek God when you're, when you're 16. You don't have to wait until you're old like me. You can seek God when you are 16 years old. He sought God. Think of that. In the 12th years, in his 20s now, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and wooden images and carved images and mixed and molded images. And I, parenthetically, that would be some manly work right there. That would be dangerous. If you're starting to mess with people's idols and you're just a young guy in your 20s and you're going, we're taking these idols down. Then you're going to encounter some resistance Young people, what a powerful example we have in Josiah to seek God when you're young and to be valiant for God when you're young and to care about what's good and right. Not let everybody else do that for you, but for you to have personal conviction that God is burning into your own soul. That you would say to your peers, that's not right. I'm not going to be involved in that kind of thing. My heart is devoted to Jesus Christ and I'm going to follow Him. He's my King. He's my Lord. I'm not going to talk that way. I'm not going to get involved in those kind of jokes. I'm not going to listen to that kind of music. Are you listening to me? Are you with me? Don't you think that would honor the Lord? Can you imagine Josiah when he's a young man being used of the God? Verse 4, he broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars 
which were above. He cut them down. The wooden images, carved images. He was very thorough in his obedience. The molded images he broke in pieces and made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. And he also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. My goodness. There's a man's man. Verse 8, 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land of the temple, he sent Shaphan, Azaliah, and Maziah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. This guy is cleaning house. He's saying, I think we need some worship around here. We need to restore worship. We need to take down the idols. We need to go after all of that. We need to wipe that out. We need to restore worship. And this is all before he finds the book of the law. And then he finds the book of the law. And then he tears his clothes. And then he repents of his sin. And then he cries out to God in repentance. And then God sends revival. And everybody follows him. What a story. Now, who else would like to be named Josiah tonight? That's awesome. Why is the story of Josiah in the Bible? Because God wants to inspire his sons. And he wants to inspire his daughters that even in a dark time, it is possible even for a young person to be faithful and obedient to the Lord. What a wonderful picture that is. If I was a kid, I think I'd love that part. I'd read that. Let me just go over a little list for Josiah real quick. Here we go. He was especially blessed of the Lord with a long reign. Verse 1. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. In the sight of the Lord. Verse 2. He was resolute in his obedience to the Lord. Verse 2. He didn't turn to the right hand or the left. He was like straight on in his youth. He followed his ancestors who had a heart for God. Verse 3. He sought God in his youth, verse 3. In verses 3 through 7, he was willing to stand alone against wrong courageously. In verses 8 and 14 and 18, it's clear that he loved the worship of God. Look at verse 14. When they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. They had lost the, the book of the law. They found it. He said, I've found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. As it happened, verse 19, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Later in verse 21, he command, concerning the words of the book that was found, great is the wrath of the Lord that's poured out on us because of our fathers who have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. It's simple, isn't it? You see what God says. You see that you haven't obeyed what God says. That those around you haven't obeyed what God says. You repent of that and you seek God and you claim His promises and revival comes. And this is what Josiah did, and this is the picture that God wanted His people to have there. And this book of God has come to us. The book of God has come to us. The Word of God has come to us with the same message to us that live in a very dark time, in a very discouraging time, in a very filthy time, in a very vile time, in a very, a very ugly time. And sin around us, even among the church, it is possible in that situation to still be faithful to God. I call you to that. And, and let's, let's hold each other to that, to be a Josiah in a time like that. And then it goes on in verse 20. Uh, there, he understood the sinfulness, his sinfulness and God's holiness. He loved the Word of God and he tried to obey it and he tried to get others to obey it. You see that in verse 21. He served God all the days of his life, which should be our goal. And look at verse 27. That's what God says. Because your heart was tender, you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place. Against its inhabitants, you humbled yourself before me. You tore your clothes and wept before me. I have heard you, says the Lord. Anybody here could do that tonight. You could tear your clothes. You could weep before the Lord. You could be honest before the Lord and say, I'm grieved 
that my life isn't what it ought to be. And have, if you had a tender heart, as a principle of God's Word, if you had a tender heart, God's heart would move toward your heart. And God would bless your life. There's not a soul in that building that that wouldn't be true about. Let me just say, I like to kind of talk for young people. We got kids, young people in on Sunday night. And we're, we're, you know, our church, a big deal is the winter camp, right? We, we have lay people that have been laboring and working with our young people sacrificially. We have a history of winter camp being a big deal. 100 people or 75, 80 or 100 people are going to go to winter camp a couple of weekends from now. And, and you know, we all want young people to have a great time. It's just we, we love kids, and so we want them to have a great time. And I just imagine them skiing and snowboarding and eating good stuff and just having a fun time. And I, I got kids. I know what that's like. But I got to tell you that what I'm going to be praying for while you guys are gone is that you will meet with God and that God will meet with you and you will hear from God. I'm not asking you to do something that we're not trying to do. We're going to be trying to meet with the Lord here too. But when those of you go off to winter camp, I want you to know we're going to be praying for you. And I call the church to prayer that as the young people go, that God will meet with those young people and that God will love those young people. That they will see God. That they will know God. Wow, wouldn't it be something in our church if God began to stir among our people and there was a hunger for the things of God and a hunger for the Word of God. Young people wanted to read the Bible. They wanted to read books about the things of God. They wanted to talk about God all the time. They wanted to be soul winners. They wanted to give a witness to people. God cleaned up their hearts and their minds. And if dads were broken and moms are broken and pastors and deacons are broken, and if we pray, maybe God will meet with our young people when they go. So let's pray that God will do that. What a wonderful thing that would be. I could talk a long time about that, but I think you're pretty good at getting the message. Notice the end of Josiah's life in 2 Kings 23 and verse 25. Here's a little synopsis jumping back into 2 Kings. It says, Now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor after them him did any arise like him. This is a picture that God has given us. And then when you get to the end of, of Second Chronicles, you have this beautiful little light that shines and that there's a proclamation by Cyrus to allow the people to go back and to restore that temple which was torn down and to restore, restore that temple and restore the worship. And this is the beautiful promise that he's given. Yeah, I've probably told you a lot of times that I have a great privilege in my life and not everybody has it, I do. And that is that, I'm, like many of you, I have a dad who I have always been able to really count on. And I've always wanted to be the kind of dad that my kids could count on. And I know that you feel the same way about your children and about other people's children too. I've been, had times in my life when I was really ashamed of where I found myself. I had times in my life when I really had made a mess of things. I'd, I'd run out of resources. I had difficult circumstances that crushed in on me. And one of the first things I would think about during that time is, I need to call my dad. I need to call my dad. And I know that my dad, he's not going to be there to condemn me. He's going to help me get back on my feet. I remember one time when our car broke down. We're trying to go back to Bible college. And we're halfway between home and a long, long way away. And many hours from home. And the transmission went out of the car. And I don't have AAA. I don't have, I, I have 300 bucks in my pocket. That's it. And I got a car with no transmission. And I got a young wife. I don't know what I'm going to do. And the first thing that occurred to me was, I have a dad who's made a promise to me. And that promise is, if you ever need anything, 
you call me. And I knew that my dad, who's a man of very modest means, would move heaven and earth to get to me and to help me. And I went to sleep that night, Lois, is this not true? And before we woke up, he was knocking on the door with a log chain <laughs> dragging us back home. I don't know what your dad's like, but I do know what your heavenly father's like. He's embedded in his word beautiful promises for people like you who sometimes get so far from God and so messed up and you're out of resources and you're out of hope. The promises of God are still in his word and they can be claimed by any common Christian who would claim them. But who will do it? Who will claim the promises of God? Who will follow him like Josiah? Where are those men and where are those women? Let's pray tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for this time that we can be together and just look at how rich your word is. These stories, these pictures are so beautiful. They so stir our hearts and they stir up within us a desire to be holy. And yet there's another force that comes and it just eats away at us every week. And it, it pressures us and it compromises us. And we don't do the things that we wish we had done. And, and we do things we wish we had not done. This is our experience and we confess it before you, God. But we, we pray, God, that you would sweep in amongst us in our number. That you would that you would cause us to have a spirit of intercession, that you would give us a desire to pray, and, and that we would, we would love the prayer meetings, and that we would love to be with a, with a prayer partner, that we would default to talking to you and calling out to you and remembering the promises that you've given to us, and help us in this way, and bless these who have come here today on this Lord's Day. As they have been hungry for God, I pray that you would fill them up. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.